the World Nomads Podcast bonus episode. Here, amazing nomads sharing their knowledge, stories, and experience of world travel. Well, in this great big community of ours, we know the best part of travel is often the challenge the lifestyle throws at us. There's a catchphrase that we use here at World Nomads, explore your boundaries. You would have heard it a million times in our podcast. Well, not a million times because we haven't got About a million 50. episodes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Push yourself to the edge of discovery, learn, and then push some more. But it's explore your boundaries, not explore the boundaries. So it's a, a personal journey. Uh, egging you on from wherever you are, be that a first-time traveller or a seasoned globetrotter. No doubt something or someone has inspired you to be a nomad, which brings me to the guest we have in the studio now. His journeys transcend travel and adventure as we know it to sit in the realm of exploration. He's crossed deserts, oceans and mountain ranges and has twice recreated the epic efforts of heroic Antarctic explorers. Tim Jarvis, welcome. Thank you, Phil. Nice to be here. Look, that was a bit of a throwaway line in my introduction there. Recreated the epic journeys of two Antarctic explorers. We're talking about Douglas Mawson and Ernest Shackleton. They are superheroes, really. Tell us more, for people who don't know, tell us more about what they did. Yeah, they really were. And I mean, I think um, polar exploration back in what they call the heroic era basically 100 years ago, just before the First World War, was uh, space exploration of the period. You know, people went out there and they didn't know whether they were going to make it. There were no maps. They didn't know what they were going to find. The equipment was all very primitive. Uh, and they were out there with no possibility of any kind of backup. And Mawson and Shackleton, along with Scott and the Norwegian Amundsen, were the lead figures of the period. Uh, Mawson undertook an expedition where both of his colleagues died uh, first one fell in a crevasse, along with, unfortunately, the dog team pulling the sled with most of the food. And that, yeah, <laughs> that let Mawson and the other guy with only 20% of the food they needed to, to survive and 520Ks to go to get back to, to the base. The second guy died in Mawson's arms halfway home of what he described at the time as fever, which is probably malnutrition and yeah. vitaminosis through eating the livers of the sled dogs and you name it, everything that you can imagine went wrong with him and Mawson was the only guy to survive that that incredible journey uh, and as, as as regards Shackleton you know he went on a, a big expedition south to try and cross Antarctica from one side to the other to eclipse what Scott and Amundsen had done by reaching so the go, pole which to go right over the pole yeah yep. all the way over pole halfway point all the way to the other side and it all basically went wrong ship got crushed in the pack ice he never set foot on Antarctica and the rest of the journey was all about saving him and the 27 men he was with and he did it against you know the most brutal conditions and almost impossible odds took one of the expedition lifeboats just a little seven meter long surf boat essentially yeah. and took it from antarctica to the sub-antarctic and raised the alarm and saved everyone it was just an epic epic journey and so you thought that looks fun i'll go and do that <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the history of it is I, I moved from the old mother country to Adelaide as a scientist and Mawson is Adelaide's number yes. one son. And um, guess what? He's he's from, uh, we were talking earlier, he's from the Pennines too. He's from Yorkshire oh, right. originally yep. by yep. birth. He's six foot four. Uh, he went to work as a scientist at Adelaide Uni and his, his birthday is one day apart from mine, albeit 50 or 60 years adrift. Um, and next thing somebody said, you know, you're similar to Mawson. Why don't you prove that he didn't have to cannibalise the second guy who died in his arms to make it? And so a plan was hatched and I decided to do it with the food that he said he had without the need to eat, in my case, an increasingly nervous Russian bloke with whom I travelled. 
and uh, just to see if it could be done the way he said it could. And you did it with the same equipment as well? With Yes, I mean, those guys in that period, they weren't very good at talking about their emotions or their loved ones or deep innermost thoughts about anything, really, but they were very good at itemising the gear and which way the wind was blowing and all this sort of stuff. So actually their diaries give you a really good, accurate account of what they took so you could replicate exactly what they had down to the kind of the nail and the you know the, the sledge biscuit and so i replicated all the food the sled weights the traditional navigation the clothing everything and did it the same as mawson to see what would happen uh and how'd you go <laughs> well you know um, <laughs> well you're here for a start i didn't eat the russian and you and you're russian bloke i didn't eat the russian <laughs> and i'm alive i lost 32 kilos i lost um I lost uh, teeth, uh, so the metal in the fillings contracted in the extreme cold. I was a, kind of a physical wreck by the end. Uh, I would never do that again. Uh, it was basically, you know, organised starvation to mm. see what would happen. Um, I had some backups, but not, you know, there were plenty of gaps and plenty of opportunities to kill yourself, frankly, on that trip. Um, and I finished it in 47 days, ironically, exactly the same time as Mawson took, even though I didn't try and contrive the time i was out there or anything else i was trying to get through it as fast as i could yeah and um a whole new level of respect for mawson but i don't think he ate the other guy you know basically okay. is what i would say what was going through your mind while you were undertaking this journey yeah well the support was we got taken to the start and picked up at the end by a film crew who did a bit of filming and they extracted the russian guy who was kind of playing the role i guess of of the guy who uh, died halfway home in mm. mawson's original trip and so I had a little bit of human contact in the middle, but the rest of the 47 days I was either with him, we were on our own, or I was on my own. Uh, but at least they kind of knew where I was. I had a beacon that tracked where I was, but they couldn't get to me in the event of, a, say, a storm or if I fell in a crevasse or something like that. Uh, you're a long way from uh, from any real any real help. And I think, you know, every step of the way, you're just, you're just breaking down the total journey into small pieces and working towards the achievement of those. You know, you... You never really consider triumphantly reaching the hut and walking through the door like Mawson did 100 years before you and proving his innocence or anything like that. You're thinking, if I can just get through the next hour and then I'll have a break, have a look at the compass again, adjust the clothes, you know, have a bit of kangaroo jerky for, you know, and then just try and keep moving. Um, that's all you can possibly think of. And did you ever think you weren't going to make it? There are plenty of plenty of times during that trip that I thought I wouldn't make it. Um, big storms, self-doubt, physical injury, bad frostbite, just running out of energy. You know, I was on 2,100 calories a day, which is less than a third of what you really need for a guy my size to pull a sled in yeah. sub-zero temperatures, you know, 150 kilo sled, 10 hours a day. You, I found I'd used all my food up by 10 in the morning. I had to wait till the next day till I could eat again, you know, and you just feel the weight dropping off you. And your mood is bad and your ability to keep warm is is compromised because you're not eating enough yep. and all of the things you might anticipate, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there were plenty of occasions where I thought I wouldn't make it. Crevasse falls, um, getting lost. All good fun. But you did. And what was that feeling like when you... Well, you know, the funny thing is when you finish, um, 
the irony is that you become so good at breaking down the total thing into small pieces, you finish, you know, you finish, and it feels like just the end of the last shift. You know, you've become so focused on giving structure to your world. Don't forget you're travelling in 24-hour light, you've got an endless white horizon, there's no one around, and you everything is in your own head, and so you become very focused. So when you do finish and you meet people and, you know, that's it, you don't have to pull the sled anymore, you take a long time before you realise you've actually finished. Mm. And then there's a um, feeling of um, relief and then a gradual slow burn excitement builds that you've done it and you've hopefully defended Mawson's honour and all that kind of thing. But it's slow. It takes a while to come to terms with it. So that was 2007, yeah? That was, yeah. Three years later you've gone, that was fun. Let's do, <laughs> yeah. let's, let's do Shackleton's trip. Well, you know, I mean, uh, as I say, I mean, Mawson and Shackleton had travelled together in 1907 on a trip when Sh- uh, Shackleton tried to reach the South Geographic Pole, so 90 South, and he didn't quite make it on that expedition, a different expedition. And Mawson had gone on, if you like, a side trip to the Magnetic Pole, because the Magnetic Pole and the Geographic 90 South are nowhere near one another, a couple of thousand k's apart. So he went off and Mawson made it to South Magnetic, so they were known to one another. And... Um, so the Shackleton family, specifically his granddaughter, who's a woman in her 70s, lovely lady, had been closely monitoring what I was doing on Mawson. I get back to civilization. I receive a call. She said, congratulations, well done. You ever thought about doing the expedition of my grandfather? That's the big one, because I would like someone on the 100th anniversary to celebrate what he stood for and all that kind of thing. And that's where the seed was sewn and she said will you she really meant you will she was pretty forceful <laughs> rhetorical question yes. a rhetorical question yep and so that journey is across uh open southern ocean uh to elephant island is that right yeah that's right i mean you know so, so they sail down originally in the big ship yep uh, first world war's just broken out they leave and they sail the full length of the atlantic and then they encounter pack ice the ship gets stuck Pack ice closes in around the hull, breaches the hull. Very famous photographs. Famous, famous Frank Hurley shots of the the ship, stricken ship in pack ice. Really spectacular shots. Ghost ship in pack ice. Yep. I'll put some of those in the show notes for people to have a look at. Just amazing that he did it, especially under duress with the technology of the time and everything else. So the ship goes down and they're just basically left on pack ice. No one knows where they are. They don't have enough food. They're never going to make it. Uh, They've got three lifeboats from the ship and they shelter under those and they kill seals and penguins to sustain themselves, eat their dogs, the normal story. And, you know, Shackleton's leadership kind of gets them through and they're out on the pack ice for a total of over a year after, you know, so the ship goes down another four or five months on the pack ice after being stuck on the stricken ship. And they finally, the pack ice breaks up and they have to put the boats the right way up and paddle for their lives to reach this place, Elephant Island, just off the Antarctic Peninsula. And that in itself is a pretty godforsaken spot. It's just, you know, glaciers and vertical rock faces and, you know, the only running water is is glacial meltwater and the only food is the odd seal you can catch. You know, that's basically it. But even reaching the island isn't um, rescue in itself. There was a, a trek involved as well. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, so they reach Elephant Island. Um, Shackleton knows that, They've got, don't forget, there are 28 of these guys, Shackleton plus 27, and he knows they're just not going to make it through the winter, which is now only a few months away. 
So he decides the only thing for it is to get in the most seaworthy of those three small boats and undertake this incredible journey across the Southern Ocean from Elephant Island to a place called South Georgia, 1,500 k's away. And he knows there's a whaling station there, and he thinks, if I can reach that, I can get a bigger ship sent south, and that's what he manages. But three big storms, uh, mountainous seas, they almost sink um, many times, almost capsize many times, um, frostbite, you know, just the most dreadful journey you can imagine. And they do reach South Georgia against all the odds, and it's just a dot in the South Atlantic. If they missed it, next place is Namibia, another 4,000 k's further on, so there's nothing else down there. Yep. But they arrive on the southern side of the island, and they can't get around the coast to the north, where all the whaling stations are, so they have to go through the middle, climbing the mountains, with no maps and no equipment and no ropes and no tent, no climbing experience. And they do it in a time that even Reinhold Messner hasn't been able to replicate. Reinhold Messner, the greatest mountaineer in the world, so, you know, it's an amazing, amazing journey. And that's what you recreated? You did that with the team as well? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, saying yes when you get asked to do it is, um, you know, I was very flattered that the Shackleton family should ask me, especially his granddaughter, who's the kind of the, you know, centre of the whole Shackleton world now, you know. And um, so I said yes. Have to say there are many times late at night when you're alone with your thoughts where you think, I don't know how sensible this is going to be, you know. We're going to rebuild the small surf boat with a little toy mast and oars and wear cotton smocks and woolens and leather boots and not take epurbs or neoprene or life jackets and use a chronometer and a compass sextant to see the sun and you know eat lard and didn't eat seal i'm an environmental guy right can't can't (laughs) go around eating seal meat obviously um but we you know we took the equivalent stuff and it was a pretty unpalatable diet i know people listening to this right now well why would you do all this and i know it's because of your belief in uh the environment and you want to raise awareness about the danger of uh climate change as well so that was a part of both of those expeditions it was look i mean i i think um you definitely do it there's there's a whole bunch of other things too I mean, there's ego and there's the physical challenge and there's the mental challenge and at the end of the day you know you want your life to be to amount to what you expect of yourself you know you don't want to let yourself down and um as soon as you get the bug and you start understanding what you're capable of and you can only do that by really embarking on a journey whatever that journey happens to be it becomes very empowering and you think well let's just see how far we can push this and that's human nature really and i'm sure many listeners will have the same experience if they embark on their first journey and they'll find it doesn't get it out of their system they just want to do more and it's the same same with this and i found myself just uh trying the next thing but bigger than the last in terms of um the environment piece i realized very early on that you don't get anywhere talking to people about you know hockey stick curves of carbon dioxide emissions and things is too it's just not interesting yeah. to a lot of people but if you can talk about melting glaciers and polar adventure and leadership and things like that and you can get in front of politicians and the corporate world and you know when you're there you have a captive audience and you can pitch your environmentalism by stealth on the back of your leadership lessons and it's proven to be a very effective thing and i even tell the corporate audiences that and they have a laugh about it but they still expect to hear the leadership-based stuff, but then they're prepared to listen to the environmental messages. Which uh, brings us to the 25-0 project 
Um, 25-0, what does that stand for? Well, there are 25 mountains at the equator that have a glacier. And in quarter of a century, the ice will be gone due to climate change. So the 25-0 name is a play on those two sets of numbers. And the reason I chose mountains at the equator to go and climb and highlight glacier melt is because you need you need a, a sort of a proxy for climate change. You can't see greenhouse gas, yep. so you need something else. So look, melting glaciers is a good way of showing climate change. Trouble with the Antarctic or the Arctic is that they're too big. Antarctica is twice the size of Australia, covered in 2K's average thickness of ice. You can't just point to a piece of ice. And it doesn't have a human population, so no interesting stories about people. Yeah, That's what really engages you. But at the tropics, lots of people being badly impacted by glaciers on places like Kilimanjaro, Mount Kenya, the Karstens Pyramid in Papua, mountains in Ecuador, Cotopaxi, Chimborazo. And they're really fascinating stories, incredible places. So the project's about climbing those mountains with glaciers at the equator and highlighting the change telling people what they can do and using the human interest stories to get people engaged. Every picture tells, uh, you know, plenty of stories. There are some pictures I've seen uh, on the um, 25-0 project showing very early photographs of the glaciers on um, some of the, the mountains that you've climbed. And you've gone up and you've recreated those, you've taken them, and it's quite obvious what's going on. Yeah, the, 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 one of the most spectacular ones, I think, is in the Ruanzori Mountains, which is uh, the mountain range between Congo and Uganda, the mountains of the moon, they're called them. You know, if people, listeners get the opportunity, that's one place that's really worth going, mountains of the moon, really spectacular. Um, and the Duke of Abruzzi went there in 1906 to try and find the source of the Nile. That was what it was all about, climb mountains while he was there. And he took shots of those mountains, and they were—they still are home to Africa's largest ice cap, bigger than Mount Kenya and Kili combined, in fact. And I thought, if I can get to the same spot as he took that shot in 1906 and show the change, so that's what we did. And 85% reduction from when he took it to when I took it. And I run a little seven or eight second transition showing the change from the old black and white picture with lots of ice to the colour one with not much. Tim, it's been a great pleasure meeting you. You too. You're an inspiration, mate. Fantastic well, I stuff. I enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Good on you. Cheers. Thanks, Phil. He is indeed an amazing nomad. You can follow 250 online where you can also subscribe to updates on the project, which is ongoing. You can find our bonus episodes alongside the World Nomads podcast on iTunes. Amazing nomads. Be inspired. <laughs>